0: Welcome to another episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association, where I interview leaders of in the field of psychology in Kentucky. My name is Hannah Heights, and I'm a doctoral student in the Counseling Psychology program at the University of Louisville. Just wanna note that this episode was recorded on May 20th, which was just a few days before the murder of George Floyd. Today, I'm here with Dr. Amanda Mitchell, Assistant Professor of Counseling Psychology and Director of the Social Inequities and Health Lab at the University of Louisville welcome. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Hannah. I'm excited to be here and appreciate you asking me. All right. So just to get started, if you could tell us a little bit um, about what attracted you to the field of psychology and, and what um, drew you to become a psychologist.
1: Sure. So I think for a long time, I've, I've shared the value or had the value of the process of self-reflection and engaging in self-reflection I don't know that I would have had the language to identify it as that when I was younger. And at the same time, I think I just really felt an interest and curiosity around why people do what we do and what motivates our actions and behaviors. And I can specifically remember sitting in a class, um, Dr. Uh, Donna Henderson King's class at Grand Valley State University, uh, where she was talking about social psych principles like uh, stereotype threat and interpersonal processes and confirmation bias and thinking, I don't know how to do this for a job, but this is what I wanna do. So um, even though I was a shy kind of quieter student, I ended up uh, approaching her after class and asking her um, how to keep doing this. And she recommended a path in uh, psychology and really encouraged me to get exposed to research, Um, And she introduced me to the idea of graduate school and the pursuit of a PhD. And so I think that's really what started my path as a psychologist.
0: It's so amazing how one person kind of can alter your trajectory like that.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I definitely credit her with it. I, I don't know how much she knows that, but it's definitely true.
0: So how did you end up as an assistant professor and director of the Social Inequities and Health Lab?
1: Sure. I knew when looking at graduate schools um, based on my undergrad mentorship that it was important to think about research that I cared about. And that meant for me understanding and exploring the link between mental and physical health. So that's where I started and looking at uh, PhD programs that would allow me to do that work uh, with an applied emphasis. So either clinical psychology or counseling psychology. Um, and that took me to the University of Louisville under Dr. Postle. And from there, once I kind of completed some work in my PhD there, I uh, wrapped up with a APA accredited internship um, to complete my counseling psych degree um, at the University of Utah. So my work in graduate school was really around understanding chronic stress, the experience of chronic stress, and how that affects mental and physical health. Um, But I found that I wasn't done yet. Uh, what What I really cared about was applying and thinking about that in the context of social inequities or health disparities and understanding the processes that actually are at play between mental and physical health. So the biological processes and functioning, um, that's that becomes really important to think about when we start to understand why mental health contributes to higher rates of um, physical health um, conditions. And so from there, I sought out a postdoc experience uh, after my graduate training at Ohio State University's Institute for Behavioral Medicine Research. And I worked under Dr. Christian Um, And her lab is focused on stress, uh, behavioral immunology, and health disparities. So I really started to understand how social inequity um, and the stress associated with it can uh, contribute to greater mental and physical health issues, uh, particularly in perinatal health disparities, actually, uh, which is not where my work is right now. Um, So once I received both that training, I knew I wanted to continue with the academic route and I was looking for positions primarily in counseling psych PhD programs. Um, I really value kind of the overlap in my training with counseling psychology and psychoneuroimmunology, And what that means is that I try to work from a lens of values that we espouse in counseling psychology like social justice and and kind of a cultural humility background to this work Um, and also care about how we know that these um, uh, mental health and physical health outcomes are connected, which is my PNI rub. So um, I think that led me to uh, taking an assistant uh, professor position at the University of Louisville in the counseling psych program. And that's how I opened the LAM.
0: Thank you. It's such an interesting trajectory and thinking about your experiences from psychoneuroimmunology to clinical practice, um, what would you say that your favorite part of being a psychologist is?
1: Yeah. I spent a little time thinking about this because um, I think there's a lot of classic answers to it, you know? Um, For me, the one that stands out is just the multiple hats that I get to wear. I I sought a position at UofL because I liked that um, I could be engaged in research, teaching, and clinical work uh, I value kind of all of those hats and the integration of those hats um, that I get to wear. And I like that I get to, to do all of that work. I think the downside of it is that um, it's easy to become fully immersed in that work and also um, get burnt out. <laughs> so I really have to be mindful about taking time to step back. And be present in what I'm doing and my everyday activities, so that I don't find myself um, a little overwhelmed with the the amount of hats and responsibilities that come along with it.
0: Yeah, that's it is definitely easy to get burned out. But I think right now, kind of thinking about the context of COVID 19 and the fact that we've all had to take a step back, in, in some ways, um, do you think there would be any major changes in the field of psychology as a result of COVID 19 or do you have any worries or kind of feelings of excitement about where the field could be headed?
1: Yeah, it's interesting to think about, I think, the, the current climate. Um, something that I've noticed in the clinical work realm is just the increased accessibility for telehealth, um, even how, uh, you know, we <clears throat> at the University of Louisville uh, in the counseling psych program, we we also run uh, the Cardinal Success Program, which is, Uh, collaborations across um, West Louisville primarily but also other organizations across uh, the city uh, that provide behavioral health services and we've moved um, our services right now to telehealth or to um, some telehealth options and I think we've seen a lot of folks have to adapt to that structure Um, I think it's providing some increased accessibility. There's a lot of folks writing about that right now, and I would defer to them because I don't know what that looks like. I also see other challenges associated with it, though. Um, I think there's still barriers to access to internet or to stream some of that. And while, you know, legal and ethical kind of well, maybe not ethical, but certainly legal aspects have been relaxed. Some to allow for other venues for telehealth services. I don't think those will stay. And I think that could then affect the continued accessibility to mental health care um, in, telehealth, in the telehealth um, world. But um, but generally, I think COVID nineteen is going to mean that we're going to you know have an increased experience and rates of people seeking out mental health services. I mean, just during the process of you know physical distancing, um, but also grief and other experiences that are going to come alongside um, COVID nineteen is going to mean um, hopefully, I guess that some mental health services are being accessed after it. Um, I also think. You know, in COVID-19, we're seeing inequities um, emerge in rates of of, um, exposure and infection and and with folks of color experiencing higher rates of of COVID-19. And I think that's really underscoring the inequities that exist in our society all the time. Um, you know, we see these inequities in other physical health conditions like cardiovascular disease. Um, and I think our field of psychology, when isolated, can really focus on the individual experience of that, right? Like how it's, how it's actually affecting a person or the person experiencing it, as opposed to understanding the systemic barriers that um, are present that then affect um rates um so things like policies and Um, housing instability and environmental factors all these things are contributing um, to inequities in our society um, by race ethnicity socioeconomic background and more so we really need to I think make sure we're not siloed in that individual experience and and work with um, integrating other models from public health sociology um, you know critical race theory things that really help us begin to understand um, inequity and how it's affecting folks in the context
0: of COVID-19. I really think this um, pandemic right now is a a great example of how we need to think more interdisciplinarily and um, kind of look through all the different lenses and consider all the factors that are at play for people.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's probably what drew me to the idea of connecting counseling psych and and PNI work, and I think I see those connections, that interprofessional Uh, research and practice across lots of different settings in the clinical world, Um, but also folks doing research that really brings that lens. So I think just making sure that, you know, in classes and in our work that we're really reading some of this work that's been done that um, describes that intersection and, and begins to make sure that folks studying psychology or folks studying public health are also introduced to kind of models and theories that help us understand these concepts at different levels right individual microsystems macrosystems however however we want to think about it
0: i really love that perspective so kind of zooming out um to that level what kind of impact do you want to make in the field through your practice of psychology
1: yeah, I, I probably spend too much time thinking about that um, because I think it is important for me to, to have a meaningful impact at, at the end of my career and my time here, but it's important for me to ask a question about how I'm defining that and, and is it defined by only like my lens or is it defined by by the folks around me? So at the end of the day, I think it's really important that I try and approach my work with a thoughtful and intentional lens Um, and and use my voice, especially the power and privilege associated with it, to either elevate work of other folks or to elevate voices of of folks who may not share that power and privilege. Um, And I think the impact that I have is probably better defined by um, other people and the people that I actually do affect and whether they think it was meaningful or not. Uh, So a little bit maybe of 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 a Hidden an answer there or a <laughs> non-answer, but um, I really think that while I care a lot about having a meaningful impact, um, I really can only focus on on being critical of the work that I'm doing and making sure that it's kind of the truest representation of what I can do, and then recognizing the power and privilege that comes along with that work and and trying to make space for other folks to give me feedback. At the end of the day, though, I've really had to approach it with like, I have a certain definition of that, right? But that definition mm-hmm. is informed by my own experience and my own identities. And I, I think what's a better representation of the impact that I end up having is the folks around me and asking them, you know, what they think about the work that happens or the work that we collaborate on and and what that means to them.
0: That's very well said. So thinking about making big changes in a a systemic way, how do you maintain your motivation um, at times when goals feel unachievable or it feels like making an impact can be challenging?
1: Mm -hmm. I think most of my energy in my current work comes from students. Um, interactions with students I, and, um, and folks who um, may not be totally immersed in the academic world and research and uh, clinical work and I say that because I think folks with um, newer perspectives or who might not be fully immersed in it all the time ask questions that um, when we're sitting in a system we it's hard to notice and so folks are more willing to push at things that are, quote unquote, um, the way it's always been done, right? Or the way a system has always operated. And I think that's the work where meaningful change comes from. And I think there are changes that need to occur in lots of systems that we work from. So the more that uh, we can elevate voices of folks who are willing to challenge those, Um, kind of traditional processes or the things that have always been done, the more we'll see uh, maybe these systems operate in a more equitable way or at least uh, make changes toward that as a goal. So I think those interactions, having those conversations, those are motivating to me, right? Um, by by nature, and so I I look for those and I really try to hold on to those when when they come up. If I'm only relying on persistence or my own persistence to to make to find motivation, I find that that's when I get really burned out, and I um, it's easy then for me to feel a little bit less hopeful about the possible possibility for change. And so that's usually a good cue for me that I need to engage in some self-care and take a little bit of a break.
0: Do you have a a specific example of a time where conversation happened or anything in particular that helped you feel more motivated? Hmm. I think it
1: it comes from like random emails that I get. You know, I've had I just received an email that of a of a person who you know, was like, hey, I, I noticed that you do this work that intersects like counseling psych and PNI work, and I'm really interested in both, but I know nothing about it. Like, I, I didn't know this existed until I started Googling, like, would you, you know do you have a few moments where you'd be open to talking and it's like absolutely like that those are the things that like give me energy like the fact that like somehow you stumbled upon this like I'm more than happy to share what I can and then um, I'm going to learn something from that conversation too or when students stop by my office randomly and they're like hey something you said the other day made me think about um, this concept like do you have thoughts on that or do you want to talk about it you know, it's probably a reason why it I actually can go too long in meetings because I'm like, I get excited when, you know, students have ideas or when other folks have ideas and they're like, I just want to talk with you about this and learn more about it. So I think um, those random emails or just like spontaneous conversations that can emerge um, or collaborations. I also just recently had somebody say, like, hey, I wanted to connect you to because it seems like you're doing work, you know, both in kind of thinking about interventions and thinking about health outcomes, like maybe you two should have a conversation with me. That is the type of energy, you know, building those types of relationships and collaborations and engaging in that dialogue is, is type of stuff that, that gives me motivation.
0: That's well, very cool to hear examples of that and to know that both students and colleagues and even kind of random people can be rejuvenating in that way.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even like when people ask me in the community or in my life, like about like what I do, like I find that it's, it's, it's always interesting to see kind of the perspectives and personal experiences that people have tied to, to some of this work and the willingness for folks to open up and share those, you know, um, without maybe even knowing me super well is, is motivating because I think it's like, oh yeah, this is the, you know, this is why I'm, became interested in this work and, and why I continue to think and read about it and try and, and try and kind of facilitate a lab that, that supports it because it's, it's this, these exact conversations, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. That reminds me of the really famous TED Talk. I think it's like Simon Sinek or someone like that. It, Tell me your why or something and kind of how that's like a motivating mm-hmm. force and to kind of have your why statement or a mission statement for yourself can be a good thing to look back to when you're feeling a little bit lost.
1: Oh, yeah. And I think sometimes with a, you know, my colleague, uh, Kelly Quirk had that in every grad school experience. She'd be like, but why? And, and we would keep, you know, we kept asking that, I think, throughout graduate school. And I, I still ask that. And I think part of it that that can be the very thing that makes me burn out too quickly, because if it gets too big or if it's, you know, too much about my impact and what I'm doing, right, too self-focused, then I think what ends up happening is you kind of collapse, because in my experience, it, it's easy then to be a little bit, like, less hopeful about, like, change or movement on some of these issues, right, and so I really, like, the why I think is helpful, but it also has to be a little bit more, um, I don't know, Contained or, you know, approached with the lens of, of maybe
0: humility and
1: among other things, in order for it to feel like sustainable over a long
0: period of time. Yeah, that makes sense. Thinking about asking why and kind of facing challenges and having questions, can you tell me a story about an unexpected challenge you encountered and kind of how you went about um, overcoming that challenge?
1: The first thing that comes to mind is just experiencing self doubt throughout the process of of my route to academia and even within academia you know things like imposter syndrome get written about regularly or feeling a sense of belonging in academia um, you know depending on your kind of identities that you bring into the space and there are a lot of moments when I can think like I kind of let that experience of self-doubt get the better of me, whether it's like on job interviews or, you know, taking comprehensive exams. Um, you know, there have been moments when I've been unsuccessful in some of those feats, both of those. And so I think those with maybe even just experiencing burnout and wondering like, is this what I want to keep doing? Like, is this where I'm going to keep getting energy? You know, am, am I going to just feel burned out so often that it makes it hard to, to kind of move forward in a meaningful way. Um, So I think in some of those experiences, I guess that would be the more umbrella challenge that I face with like little specific kind of steps or milestones along the way being the actual like specific challenge. I guess I I feel like I'm still working on self-compassion. I think that's an ongoing process for a lot of folks. Um, And when I found that I, I don't have enough of it in that moment to get through that self-doubt, I've had to kind of look to my own social support um, where I feel like people do believe in in me or in something that I'm doing um, and, and really getting and asking for their support to, to feel that um, enough to kind of move beyond the specific challenge that I'm facing.
0: That's a great answer. Thank you. And I think thinking about self compassion i think we're so so able to offer it to others generally but to give it to ourselves is is always a challenge maybe especially in academia yeah and i
1: think it mhm
0: yeah and it requires
1: like structural change to your life sometimes right for me it does certainly it, it requires me to like slow down and to um, like recognize when I'm you know pushing myself to a point where it's not helpful and I think that patience and um, intentionality you're right is not always congruent with what what can be deemed successful work or successful um, steps
0: in, in academia so I think slowing down and having to do that is is really important. Thank you for for sharing that. And then what do you feel are some of the most significant factors that assist you in getting others committed to social inequities? So it's not always easy to have those conversations. Yeah, it's not. I think the, the
1: idea of inequity inherently is, is uncomfortable, right? Um, if not impossible for a lot of people to sit with, um, especially folks with more power and privilege. And that includes me sometimes, right? But it because it, it means having to see things that you value and really challenge those things, right? Like this idea that maybe all that matters is hard work or that you know people can I think the classic like pick yourself up by your bootstraps and move forward, like that that sometimes those ideas they don't really recognize inequity. And so when you challenge them, Um, something, you're also challenging sometimes the value that's under it, that people value. Um, And so I think, you know, my identities as like a cis white woman allow me a little bit to have those conversations or have... um, to bring up those topics in spaces where other folks may not be able to do for safety or other reasons. And so I try to have those topics, but from a place of building a relationship with someone and being patient and and bringing them up. And then waiting, right? And then bringing them up again. And so being persistent, but also recognizing that people are coming in with different perspectives and, and sometimes it's going to take more time or a specific experience for folks to be able to slow down and see it. And I think really like knowing my own process and engaging in my own self-reflection and being open. And I, (laughs) this is kind of interesting because I don't think I often share my own like self dialogue with other folks um, as I'm on the podcast, but like, I think being able to kind of share like that it wasn't easy for me either, or that it's not always easy for me to see all that either is important because then I think it helps folks, um, feel like, okay, well, maybe I can share what I'm thinking, or maybe I could challenge this when it, it, would otherwise feel too uncomfortable to do right Mm -hmm. Um, so i guess just being willing to have the conversation and being persistent and patient with it and working from a relational standpoint and recognizing that that sometimes it it requires a little bit of trust for folks to open up and be willing to challenge maybe beliefs that they've had or values that they've had and what they're tied to.
0: Mm-hmm. So thinking about that for someone who's interested in learning about social inequities and kind of um, getting more understanding around that, do you have any recommendations for resources for them?
1: Yeah, a lot of resources and readings, I guess. Um, I think the first step is to really engage internally in your own self-reflection process. Um And you can do that I think in a lot of different ways, right? So some people gravitate towards books or resources and there's um, a lot of, wonderful new resources um, that you can use in doing that you know there's books around privilege um, whether it be white privilege racial healing books by a lot of wonderful colleagues in 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 the field um, of counseling psychology and I recommend engaging in those kind of more practical books where you have to write down and think about what your experiences were like growing up and um, you know what you sat in there's a lot of groups I mean I'm currently in a discussion group around um, like whiteness and white privilege and white fragility and what that means Um, and so I think engaging in in those when you can um when they're available to you that way you can really understand the intersection you know of your identities and what that means for you in different spaces so um you know Kimberly Crenshaw um point that idea of intersectionality and I think going back to the, that work is really important um, for us to really understand how our identities and, and what they mean in terms of how we live in and operate within systems. Something that I know that I've had to do both in my classes, and, and I think I still have work to do on this, is that um, a lot of times what we see is earlier these topics are discussed and, and written about by folks of color, and then later um, uh, white folks will come around and, and write about these topics maybe in different ways. And so I think some of this work for me has been to look at my like, readings in syllabi and syllabi and ask the question, of like, where, where is this coming from in its origin, and can I get to those original sources? and do some of that work, um, because I think that's really crucial as well. And so challenging kind of where you're getting your information, and, and really doing your research and understanding where it's coming from.
0: So that's a great place to start, I think, for, um, for those of us who are trying to, to learn more and um, be more mindful about our own identity and how we interact with others. I think that's, um, those are really beneficial, beneficial tips. Thank you.
1: And then to add on to that, actually, as you said that, you know, I focus a lot on like internal work, but I think then there's a lot of work to be done in terms of understanding inequity. And for me, that means going to the literature in multiple domains and something I've talked or I said earlier, which is like, I go and I read public health work and I I try and read sociology and In that way I'm like approaching it from not just a psychology lens but I'm understanding the idea of inequity um, and why we see you know higher rates of of physical health conditions among folks with um, low income or economic marginalization and why we see higher rates of physical health conditions among folks of color right because of these systems that are operating but I think really to put a really theoretical and and lens to it we need to understand those experiences from interprofessional work and so I really push myself to make sure that from the lens of health inequity or disparity that I'm reading lots of different fields um, when possible.
0: Thank you. It's definitely important to to stay afloat on other things outside of the field and I think it's easy to kind of get sucked into to your own sphere. Mm -hmm. So now switching gears a little bit to more um, leadership focused content. How are you thinking about leadership as COVID-19 continues to impact um, us? And can you describe an example of someone leading well during this time? Yeah, so... I think it comes back to, you know, the answer that I had with, with
1: the context of like how COVID-19 will shift our dynamics in mental health. So the first one being accessibility to services. We've seen a lot of, um, I think we've made good strides in this. And, and maybe I, I'm missing something here, but I think as, as an organization, American Psychological Association, but also at the state level, you know, we've seen them make changes and, and shift requirements for accessing mental health care in this time, you know, uh, that, that means getting easier access through other means. If, if you can't have, you know, specific secure lines, you are able to, to also connect with somebody through Skype or other programs or platforms in which you wouldn't be able to do telehealth And so I think watching large organizations quickly try and make accommodations to the context has actually been very humbling, like, okay, you know, folks do see this and there are clearly leaders in these organizations in the state, but also at the national level that are saying, hey, wait a second, you know, we need to make sure we're still providing care during such a crucial time. I think I've seen leadership in a lot of different ways um, in counseling psychology also during COVID 19. Some of that has come from um, folks within the field, um, you know being present on social media and also in news organizations to discuss um, the discrimination and bias that's happened toward um, Asian folks in the context of COVID-19. We've also seen folks from um, the Counseling Psychology Division, Division 17 of the American Psychological Association, offer like process groups and discussion groups around COVID-19. And I think that's been a meaningful way in order to promote kind of the important self-reflection that comes along with it, but also like what we can do as psychologists in this arena in order to make steps. And I know a lot of that work has come from the president of Division 17 right now, which is Dr. Annalise Singh. So I think we've seen a lot of that important work happen and and that important leadership occur.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I've been very impressed by the response of both counseling psychologists, psychologists at large, and kind of Um, I think the field has done a really wonderful job of addressing a lot of the really horrible things that are going on right now. So kind of thinking about great leaders, can you describe an example of a great leadership experience you've had in your career, whether it's with you leading or maybe someone else is leading?
1: I've been lucky to witness, I think, leadership in a lot of different ways um, through professional organizations and also community organizations. And um, so some of that has come through roles that I've played on like the APAC's FSC coordinating team when I was in graduate school or just through other organizations that I'm a part of locally through Louisville. A specific time, I guess, uh, would come from uh, when I was a part of the APAC's FSC coordinating team. I also um, was serving on a role connected with that. Through um, the state organization, the Kentucky Psychological Association, um, those things were connected in some way um, for us. Um, and so I was I had the opportunity to participate in the state leadership conference, uh, which allows you to go to Washington, D.C. and, and advocate for mental health policy issues um, there. Um, for the state of Kentucky and uh, Dr. Sheila Schuster was involved in that at that time and um, she is an incredible um, psychologist and and really does has done a tremendous amount of work in relation to advocacy in the state of Kentucky. Um, and I was able to spend um, the day with her and several other graduate students, like walking around with her and, and seeing how she did some of that work and, and witnessing it and, and, and trying to participate in it. Um, so what that often looked like is, is I think that she just really demonstrated some of the things that I think are important in leadership. You know, she had really long-lasting relationships with a lot of people um, on the Hill um, in in ones in which she could rely on and trusted folks, and folks trusted her to have those conversations. Um, I think some of that trust came from just having institutional knowledge um, around mental health and mental health policy in the state of Kentucky, but institutional knowledge coupled with current knowledge and where we were at and where we could go. Um, so watching her kind of use that and leverage that to have meaningful dialogue with people was, was super fascinating and powerful. And she was like something that I really value in people is like humor and like just a willingness to like allow for opportunities for students to engage. And she was very supportive of that. So immediately it was what could you like talk about? What clinical experiences have you had already as a graduate student that you could bring up? Um, you know, what connections do you have um, with the agencies in the district of this representative or something? And that was really powerful because it helped me see how you apply that knowledge in a meaningful way, but also kind of demonstrated value and voices of students. And, and so I would say that that experience was one of the reasons that I was like, oh, like this is what it means to like work at multiple levels beyond just individual level in the psychology field. This is like one way to do that work. And, and she was very instrumental in giving me the, I guess, perspective to see it like that.
0: Oh, and she's still doing her advocacy work today. I know I went to a um, kind of a seminar on effective advocacy at the Capitol. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I know she's still doing a lot of work. Wow. So kind of reflecting on um, your experience with Dr. Schuster and your professional experiences, what lessons would you give to other psychologists about being an effective leader?
1: I guess in in my you know, thinking about my experiences of people that I look to as leaders um, and people where when they're in the room, I'm like, wow, they seem very effective in what they're doing. I think it comes from having a recognition of institutional or history, not just institutional knowledge, I guess, because it's, but I do think that's helpful in navigating a system, but I think it's recognizing the impact that history can have on where we're at now. And so having, and recognizing that and applying kind of that knowledge, having certainly a, a a set of knowledge, but also being willing to like change that, or being open to change in a system. Um, I think sometimes where we can get stuck is when it's like, well, this is how we've done it, as opposed to like, well, how can we apply or do something different that might actually map better onto kind of the values of of the field or of an organization. I think a relational standpoint is really important. Um, building relationships with people and collaborations with people is really crucial to being an effective leader. And I think the folks that I've seen have always had strong relationships with people that they can rely on when needed, um, but also that they value the input of the other person. Right? Like it's not just a relationship in service of getting to a goal, but it's a relationship that like a person values and feedback that they can give each other to make a, a more meaningful step forward. And then. I think like being humble and recognizing that you don't know everything and, and bringing in clarity and transparency to the process, that those are just like kind of variables that help those relationships really come to fruition and also help them be maintained over time. Um, because if you're really transparent and able to engage in that process um, from a humble place, I think people respect that and want to engage with with folks who are open to that or at least when I have experienced other people to do that it makes me more excited to
0: to work with them and to learn from them I agree I think those are some great insights into what makes a good leader well I think we're at the end of our time for today but thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast and giving us your time and sharing some of your insights into the field and into leadership more broadly of course
1: yeah happy to happy to be here
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association. Our sound engineer is Julian Mackerel. A big thank you to the KPA Leadership Academy and Dr. Eric Ress for making this podcast possible.